Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a perceptive theme recorded live in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. In this podcast, we feature a special Porch Night edition of our show with storytellers from Lita Harris Newsteader's The Lovely Afro. As we gathered within the white picket fence behind the Irma Heyman House, each storyteller reflects on the American dream. We are on the back porch in the River Street neighborhood, which is on the side of River Street, so you can expect to hear some ambient car noise in the background. This neighborhood is historically known for its non-white residents and porch culture, the perfect location to celebrate and elevate the melanated in the Treasure Valley. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. Hi. Has everyone found some shade? Where's my mom? There's my mom. She's a little bit sunshade. Okay. Um, welcome. My name is Lita Harris Newstetter, and I want to tell you a little bit of the backstory of what we're doing here tonight, since this is a kind of a hybrid Story Story Night Lovely Afro event. The Lovely Afro is a radio show that I created three years ago with the goal of celebrating and elevating the melanated. And that was done through stories, histories, and also through music. So each week I interviewed a black or brown guest from the Treasure Valley, sometimes from out of the state. But I also supplemented the stories and the histories that I was gaining from them with music, also from our melanated musicians. Um, So it was the stories and the histories were important, but the music was also important. I have stopped doing the radio show, and the next phase of The Lovely Afro is going to be, I am editing all 65 of those interviews that I did so that those can become podcasts that y'all could download because there's such, thank you, (laughs) there's such histories and stories that are collected and Um, In radio format, they're only on the air for two weeks, or they're available for two weeks, and then they disappear forever. And it was like, ah! So this way, I'm going to re-edit them, add some underscore music of my own. Do you have a question, or you just saying hi? Oh. Oh, wait. Okay. (laughs) Sally's over there. (laughs) I was like, doing the wave? I don't know. It's not really fit in with what I was saying, but like, I'm up. Um, so, uh, the Alexa Rose Foundation has given, has given me some grant money to help me with the editing. You're also more than welcome to join in in this process of me getting all those podcasts edited. I have a Patreon page under my name, Lita Harris Newsteader, um, and I welcome any help. What we're going to end up having is 65 oral histories from people in our community about what life is like when you walk through the world with black or brown skin. And it's their powerful stories and experiences and um, I'm really happy to be able to be helping to give them more voice. So tonight, I'm bringing back eight of my guests, actually nine of my guests. One of those guests was our musician. Yes, E.L. Anderson. E.L. Anderson is a Boise-based musician who produces beats and plays the clarinet and sings to them, like you guys heard. That was awesome. He's like a combo of, okay, so I'm not going to get any of these references, and then I'm going to feel dumb. He's like a combo of Hubert Laws, I don't know who that is, black violin, I know that, 
and Gil, is it Gil? Yeah. Gil Scott Heron. Yeah, new to me, so we all have some homework to do. He's currently part of the Boise Artist Collective, 433 Illinois Street, and is drafting a short novel about a werewolf, if you can believe it. Very cool, thank you. So he'll be providing some music at intermission at the close of the show as well. Um, so he was one of my guests. And then the eight storytellers that you're about to see were also all guests of mine. And so without further ado, I'm going to start this show off the way I started off my radio show. And welcome to the lovely Afro. Z. Turner, Terry Scraggins, Charlene Taylor, Keith Anderson, Rachel Diop. I'll say it right when it comes her turn because I have it written down. Tony Brinegar, Jeremy Hodson, and Alice Nelson. At the refreshment table, we have some old school postcards that I made back when it was a radio show. It has Radio Boise on there. So you're free to go grab one of those just as a keepsake. And uh, let's listen to the rest of my theme song, Melanin, before the show starts. Our first storyteller tonight is Z Turner. She's a senior at Boise State University studying pre-law with an emphasis in American government and public policy. She works in emergency medicine and adolescent mental health and she enjoys reading, writing, socializing with friends and spending time with her perfect puppy, Ari. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so a lot of people think that the American dream was handed to me on a silver platter. 
because I was a black child living on and off the streets of Seattle with a single mother struggling with addiction. And then I was adopted by a white middle-class family and moved to rural Idaho. But it's really not that simple. It's actually really complex. <clears throat> One, when you're adopted out of a non-safe situation, being adopted doesn't mean you automatically go into a safe situation. And two, the loss of culture and racial identity and connection to my biological family and my roots created an internal crisis, an identity crisis that I struggled with for 20 years. So growing up in a really small conservative white town adopted where there's not a lot of people of color, I was constantly told that I should be grateful. Grateful that I was adopted and I constantly heard, you should be so grateful. Imagine what your life would have been like had you stayed with your birth mom who couldn't take care of you. You're so lucky. And it created an internal conflict for me because I was thankful and grateful for a lot of things. I was grateful that I was adopted with my biological siblings. I was grateful that I wasn't living on the streets. I was grateful to have three meals a day. But at the same time, I was struggling with really intense grief and loss. I had lost the only family I ever knew. I lost connection to my racial identity, my community, and I was ripped away really suddenly from everything that I had known. I was surrounded by people who looked like me that I felt comfortable with, and all of a sudden I was living with a white family, and I was constantly othered. I was the only person of color in all my school events, and all my sporting events, and I struggled to fit in, and I struggled to love myself, and I did everything I could to be white. I straightened my hair. I put suntan lotion on a lot so that I wouldn't get darker in the summer. And no matter what I did, I was too black to be white and there wasn't a black community for me to be a part of. And I just never knew where I fit. And I was living in an area where they didn't love me and they didn't accept me. They made fun of me for the texture of my hair. They called me the N-word. And I was met with, just get used to it. That's what your life's gonna be like here. But you should still be grateful because you're not homeless and you have access to education and the American dream is possible for you. You have all the opportunity in the world. And I had really big feelings, conflicting feelings, that I didn't know how to hold space for um, with myself. I wanted to feel grateful and I did feel grateful, but I wanted to grieve that loss and I didn't know how I should grieve that loss and if it was okay for me to grieve that loss and it wasn't okay for me to talk about that loss because when I did, I was met with really severe physical consequences. And I learned really soon that it wasn't worth talking about it for me to, to suffer those consequences. And so I pushed all those feelings aside and I shoved them down and I shoved them down and I shoved them down. Um, and I graduated high school and I got accepted to college and so it's like I'm on the road to success and things still were not going the way they should. And I struggled with feeling like I have all these things and I should be succeeding and I'm not and my life's kind of imploding and in 2016 I moved to Boise and it was the first time I was surrounded by people of color, a lot of people of color for me, but I lived in Rupert and it was so uncomfortable for me. I wanted to be in these spaces and I wanted to connect with these people, but I didn't know if I was going to fit and I was hesitant to walk into these spaces and I had to be really intentional about in the uncomfortable still pressing forward and making connections and I did. I was intentional about going to the hair salon and getting life spoken into my hair and I was intentional about connecting with transracial adoptees and through that I learned that one, all these feelings that I was feeling weren't uncommon. A lot of people were feeling these feelings 
and I shouldn't feel guilty about them. I shouldn't feel ashamed of them. And the response that I got when I brought that up wasn't normal and it wasn't natural. And so I created this safe space where I could connect with people who looked like me and who understand me. And it was really a turning point for me. I began to understand that I can have grief and gratitude. I can love my family and grieve the loss of the family that I lost. And all of a sudden I was holding space for all of these different feelings and the self-love, <laughs> I'm gonna cry. <laughs> like slowly began to love all of the parts of me that I had felt shame about. My hair and my dark skin and my single mother who couldn't take care of me because she struggled with her mental health. And I started to unlearn all of the harmful things that had been taught and I learned that the Z that was raised by a single mom on and off the streets who struggled with addiction was equally as valuable as the Z who was raised by a white middle class family. So I was a little bit stumped when they asked me about the American dream. And I felt like I really shouldn't speak on it because I did feel like I had been handed the American dream, right? Like on paper, it looks like post-adoption Z has everything she needs to succeed. I have access to education. I am educated. I have a job that could be a career. I have amazing friends and family. I have a path. But the American dream looks different for anybody. Like the lens of the, it, it depends on the lens you're looking through. The American dream for my, my, my white middle-class sisters is different than the American dream for little Z living on the streets. And for me, it's, it's like a culmination of all of them. The American dream is access to education and all of the basic necessities that I was provided through adoption that I am so grateful for. And the American dream is also that connection to my community and my connection to my roots and the self-love and the learning that being black doesn't have to be all hurt and trauma. Like being, it's, being black for me has now become black joy and black excellence and black gratitude and community and so many things that I longed for but it wasn't okay for me to long for and just that connectedness of all of it. So I guess ultimately I would say that I have achieved the American dream, partly by the gift that I was given and partly because I sought it out by myself, for myself, in a time and a place that it was safe for me to do so. Our next storyteller is Terry Scraggins. Terry was born and raised in Boise. They are a foster alum, Navy veteran, licensed master social worker, and the director of the Gender Equity Center at Boise State University. They are heavily involved in the greater Boise community and are passionate about supporting others through the various hats they wear in the community. Most everybody has dreams of being successful. What success looks like to some may not look like success to the others. 
To me, the American dream means trust, respect, success, and establishment in every sense of the term. Uh, growing up in the state of Idaho as a queer person of color may seem futile to many. <clears throat> Add to that, growing up in a family riddled with poverty, generational trauma, substance use, criminal history, and that kind of all the odds were stacked against me, but I'm here today. I, <laughs> I started my advocacy journey at the age of 16 when I was in care. While I was in foster care, I lived in over 20 different homes during that five-year period. I started advocating because I wanted other people to not have to go through what I went through. Fast forward to age of 34, where I am now the first person in my family to have a master's degree. I'm one of the first people in my family to own a home. I, I, <laughs> I served in the United States Navy for four years. I helped lead the creation of a community health program at a local nonprofit. And now I'm working in diversity, equity, and inclusion at Boise State. But, I still yearn for more. And I didn't even think about what, what is the American dream to me until I was selected for this story night. Because when I think of the American dream, I think about capitalism. I think about doing more work for less pay. I think about how I'm so established in the community and I'm on two boards locally and I'm getting ready to join a third and how I'm so involved. But in that comes additional struggles. I feel like people reach out to me um, and almost demand uh, me to help them and people expect it's expected and and without even a thank you and so when I was asked what is the American dream I really had to turn inward and say Terry are you doing all of these things because you want to do these things or are you doing these things because you live in a very white Idaho and you need to prove yourself to everyone that's around. I'm still figuring that out. I still am doing four million things. I graduated with my master's back in May and don't ask me how, but I worked full time and did a 20 hour internship and was on two boards and then somehow thought it would be a good idea to train for the race to Roby Creek. So <laughs> I don't know if I'm ever gonna learn. Um, <laughs> But I do know that I, I yearn to help people and that is a passion of mine and that is why I do what I do. Um, I interned in DC in the summer of 2018 and presented a policy report to Congress and White House staff on how to improve the foster care system for LGBTQIA youth. And I do all these things because I, I want to break cycles. I know I'm a success story. I know that statistically I shouldn't be where I am today. And so, as I think about the American dream, what is it? It's a facade, in my opinion. It is, it is something that we as a culture cling on to so hard. But really, what the American dream is, is it's us trying to navigate through this wild world that we live in with lots of questions. And within that includes joy, sadness, triumph, failure, and a plethora of other things. And so... 
When I think about the American dream and am I living it? I don't know. M more to come, stay tuned. Thank you. Our next storyteller is Charlene Taylor. Charlene brought a cheerleading squad. Charlene is a consultant at a social impact firm that helps government and community organizations improve the services they provide to communities. In her work, she specializes in criminal and juvenile justice. And in her non-work time, she's engaged with a variety of organizations supporting mentorship, reproductive rights, criminal justice reform, and when she's not doing any of that, you can find her at a basketball court cheering on her 13-year-old son, who is adorbs. Wow, there's a lot of people here. Okay. Um, ah. So, the American dream. Um, when Lita asked me to do this, I was like, yeah, of course, this should be easy. There's, I could, there's a million things to talk about. And then I started trying to think about a story, and it was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Um, because the first thing I thought about was, what does it even mean to be American? It means different things to different people. And for black people in this country, especially those of us who are descendants of enslaved Africans, it means something completely different. Most non-black people in this country, they know their history. They can trace their families back to when their families came to America, back to their original country, their home, their culture, their language. When you think about black Americans, people like to act like our history began with slavery. We know, we know that's not true. <laughs> but there isn't much to say. There isn't much else that we know. And even when we think about slavery, it's not like slave owners were keeping copious records. So there's no names, there's no dates, there's a lot that's just missing, it's just gone. And that's something that I thought about a lot when I was younger. Um, I grew up in Alaska, in Anchorage, and people are like, Alaska? But Anchorage is actually really diverse. And so I had friends from all different backgrounds. And so many of them had a connection to their culture that I just didn't really have. Ours was to the South, I was born in Miami, but it's about as far as it went. And so I just, I always had questions. Um, so the little bit that I do know about my history, I know from my dad's sister, um, Aunt Annie Ruth. She's our family historian. Um, until she died, she lived in the house that my dad and most of his 15 siblings lived in, or were born in. And it was the center of the family. The thing I remember most about that house is pictures. So many pictures all over the walls, almost top to bottom. And she knew the stories of everybody in those pictures. And she loved to tell the stories of everybody in those pictures. And the more she drank, the more interesting the stories became. <laughs> um, one of the things that I heard often was that, by my generation, that I was one-eighth Cherokee. I was a little dubious, but she was like, of course, where, where do you think you got that nose? That's not a black nose. Okay, whatever. But I just, we really didn't know, and there was really no way to check. Um, one of the pictures that I remember most clearly was a picture of a man and a woman. They looked like they were in their 40s or so, standing side by side, looking at the camera, straight faces. 
Um, it reminded me of a black version of that picture with the farmer and his wife. I think it's called American Gothic. I was like, it's like the black version of that. Um, and I asked my aunt, or actually I was, I was looking at the picture and I could tell it was really old because it had that like watercolory kind of look to it. And I said, I was, I was young, I said, they look like slaves. And she said they were. And I, it just kind of stopped me because that was the first time that I connected the images that I saw in history books of enslaved Africans on ships and all of those things that we saw in history um, to people that were related to me. And so it was really, I don't know, it was really, it was really stark for me. Um, and it also made me want to know more because I still didn't know who those people were. I asked her more questions and she didn't really have the answers. So years later, thanks to the magic of science, we got Ancestry.com and DNA genetic testing. And I thought, this is the answer. This is where I'll finally get to find out where I came from, like what my background really is. And so I have an identical twin sister and she got one of the uh, DNA tests as a birthday present. And one of the cool things about twins is that we have the same DNA. So I was like, ooh, I get my answers and I don't even have to pay for it. So two for one, uh, very excited about that. So the test came, she sent it in. We were very, very anxious to get the results. And uh, the test came back and there were lots of revelations. First revelation, I am not, as I suspected, one eighth Cherokee. Not even a little bit, not at all. Sorry, Annie Ruth, <laughs> not true. But the thing that was the biggest surprise for me is that I am 93% African. And I, I was shocked by that, completely shocked. I mean, everybody knows the history of slavery in this country, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, like we know what was happening. I was surprised that anybody who was descended from slaves in this country was that much African and that little white. And fun fact, the white that I am, Swedish. That's like white, white. That's like super white. <laughs> so that's part of the story. That's the first part of the story. Um, the other thing that Ancestry does is it allows you to create a family tree. So I would go in every, my sister got the test in 2015, and every year or so I would go in and check and see if there was any new information. And so in 2020, I checked and I found this family tree that one of my cousins had been putting together. Um, had 153 names on it. And it went back from the most recent generation back like six generations. And I was looking through the tree and I saw that picture, the picture from my aunt's house. And there were names. And I was like, wow, like answers, like stories. And so I learned that the people in that picture were my great, great, great grandparents, Nelson and Eliza McCall. They were born into slavery in the 1840s. They were emancipated in the 1860s. Um, they got married when he was 25 and she was 20. They had 11 kids and a set of twins. That's where that came from. Um, and it was so cool to get the details, to finally have some pieces of the picture and I started to really just think about them and think about their life and think about what America was like for them and I started to think about what they would think about my life because my life is so different than their life was 
my son, my adorable son, <laughs> that Lena mentioned, um, is biracial. I am quite certain that my great-great-great-grandparents <laughs> could not conceive of a world where their granddaughter, me, a black woman, would willingly marry and reproduce with a white man or even be allowed to right like that that's not the way it was and children like my son were usually the result of unspeakable violence so that's different my friends the wonderful cheering squad you guys heard here <laughs> i have amazing friends all different backgrounds ages, races, very, all of them, very different from me. When I think about Nelson and Eliza, I'm pretty sure that everybody in their social circle looked like them, lived like them, had the same lived experiences they had. So that's a lot different. Um, in their world, it was illegal to, illegal to learn to read and a formal education was a pipe dream. I think they'd be astounded to know that I have a PhD. <laughs> That's something that 1.2% of the American population has. I am the vice president of a company. And thanks to one of those friends I just mentioned, um, this year I'm being honored as one of Idaho's 50 Women of the Year. <laughs> Idaho, one of the whitest states in the country. <laughs> so when I think about my great, great, great grandparents and I think about my life and what they would think, I think that by every single measure that I can think of, I am Nelson and Eliza's wildest American dream. That little piece that I was playing is called Kafo, and it's a West African lullaby that I used to teach the kids at Sage. Warning you, don't cry. Don't cry. If you cry, someone is going to come pull something out of your mouth or stick something into your mouth. I can't remember, but something's going to happen to your mouth if you cry. <laughs> and the kids were like, what are you teaching us? I'm like, talk about London bridges or ring around the rosy. Got, we've got some morbid stuff. So anyway, bravo. Um, this is our last storyteller before we'll take a brief intermission. And I want to thank the Story Story Night folks for um, courageously indulging me in having iced tea and lemonade, which I wanted to have because a lot of my storytellers, not a lot, but I had several storytellers that actually grew up in this neighborhood back in the day. And one of the things that they all talked about was the, just the front porch culture, you know, and just how much time was spent on each other's front porches. And so I wanted this to have a little bit of that vibe. And I was like, can we have some lemonade and iced tea? I feel like we need to have some lemonade and iced tea. So you can help yourselves to that. Um, 
Our next storyteller, Dr. Keith Anderson, recently retired from a 30-year career in education. He is also a writer, social activist, and musical performer, and the father of E.L. Anderson. You said in the email, don't touch the mic. So. Yeah, yes. Yes, you did. Anyway, I'm glad to be here. My name is Dr. Keith Anderson, and I don't believe in the American dream, never have. I believed in goals. And my mom, who raised me, and five other kids, taught us how to set goals and how to go for goals. So that's my story. I set goals, okay? And there was a time when I wasn't the best of people. We used to do in my neighborhood, we used to call them capers. Some of you old guys know what I'm talking about. We pull a caper. I mean, we're gonna break into your house. And um, I used to do stuff like that. And I got angry because my dad decided he didn't want to be a dad anymore. And they always tell you that divorce, the kids are resilient. And that's bullshit. It just is, okay? And I come from a pretty tough neighborhood. And my, it was hard setting goals and actually keeping them because somebody was always pulling you back into something you didn't really want to be in. And one time I was with one of my buddies and we was pulling a caper and I had to make a decision because the woman came home and I was in the house with her TV set. Okay, I wasn't watching it. And I had to make a decision real, real fast. I can run by, knock her down, keep the TV, make a few bucks. But what happens if she hits her head and something bad happens? And I don't even know what made me think that at that point. But I told myself, put it down. My friend had already left me in the house. He was gone, he saw her coming. And I said, okay, she's gonna see me and she's gonna scream but at least she's gonna be okay, and I'm gonna be okay, and I'm not gonna be in jail. And from that point on, I decided to set different goals, okay? And goals that would make my mom who was raising us, my mom worked at this bar called Ruby Lee's in Vallejo, California. It was a black bar. And she would call me sometimes when she got off because she was afraid to come outside because people got shot outside. And so I had to start setting certain type goals in my life. And the first goal I set, I wanted to be the best dad I can possibly be. And how could I do that at the point I was at right now? Now, I've always been smart. I never took a book home. I can get a B or a C and I'd even look at the book. And I told myself, well, what are you gonna do 
if you just opened the book? What could you do? Let's find out and see. And I, like I told you, I used to get angry at my situation. And I took it out on people and they took me to this person who had a white pad and he asked questions like, how did that make you feel? And that person said, why don't you do something that will, that, that your anger can actually help you. So they introduced me to football. And the people on the football field had no idea what was coming. Cause my anger in me, my anger in me, that's what propelled me. It propelled me on the field and off the field. I had a payback. And I knocked people around, and the more I knocked people around, the more I got patted on the back. And I said, I'm good at this. And so I ended up getting scholarships and I started setting other goals. And I said to myself, if you wanna bring kids in this world, you gotta make this damn place a better place to be. And how are you gonna do that? So I started liking people, not trusting, but liking. And I started being that guy that everyone knew. I didn't care what color your skin was. I really didn't. If you worked your way towards me, I would work my way towards you. So it wasn't about dreaming because I had to be awake. I didn't have time to, to, to lay down and dream. I had to set goals. I was the oldest. And any of you who are the oldest in a black family, you heard this. The others are gonna do what you do. So I had to do something and I did. And I played it out. I did my thing and I realized, okay, since you got this communication skills with people from all different colors, that's what you're going to do. No, I don't want to do that shit. I want to do that. I want money. But it's kind of weird because God has a plan for people and it don't matter what you have as a plan sometimes. And he told me, I gave you those big old shoulders for a reason. And so I started working and I've been doing anti-racism seminars here in Boise, Idaho for over 20, 25 years. I've been doing a lot of different things in that. But here's the caveat, because sometimes you think you all that. And I did. Got my little PhD, like she said, only 1% of the people got it. And I'm one of them, and so is she. But one day, I was in the store, and this woman behind the counter just pretended I wasn't there. And I was not in a good mood. And I stood there, and I was about this close for cussing her ass out. Seriously. And she finally walked up. Oh, can I help you? I said, you could have helped me 60 seconds ago. 
and it made me mad for the rest of the day. And I go over to the bank and I stand in line, <clears throat> walk up to the teller who was sitting down. And I said, wait a minute, man. You stood up and shook hands with everybody. Then I come over here, you just sit down. You don't even stand up. And now I'm getting all riled. And I'm standing there and I put my stare on him. And he rolled his wheelchair back. I didn't see shit. I made it all up in here. He never stood up for those other people. I just saw it that way. And I said to myself, if you can't even see what's right there in front of you and you make up stuff, how are you gonna fight racism? And it stunned me. And it made me think about my life. Was I faking? I think someone else asked that question. Am I a fake? And it was a hard deal. So I had to start over and I had to look deep within me, my friends. I had to give up some friends because they, didn't, they weren't comfortable with moving from non-racist to anti-racist. They weren't comfortable with it. So I had to give them up. So I went to goal number two. I wanted to be a dad, a good dad. And I worked hard on it. I wanted to be that dad that all the other dudes in the block wanted to come to our house. And I got that experience here in Boise. And she told you that's my oldest son, Eli, very talented individual. He told me, Dad, if I can survive you, I can survive anything. <laughs> and he didn't mean that in like, you are abusive type dude. I was tough. My other son, Nathan, he's up in uh, Eugene. He's a neuroscience major, getting his PhD in neuroscience. And he also has over a million and a half listeners as a rapper on, what is that, Spotify? <laughs> Spotify. I don't know that stuff. But my point is this, here's my point, is that sometimes we have to look upon ourselves to make dreams and goals come true. Because that's the way for me to have less heartbreak, less heartache. And I'm not talking about love heartache, love heartbreak. Society lets me down and I had to stop and I had to learn you can't let that happen. It's a lonely life being a warrior, anti-racism warrior. Those of you who do it, you know what I'm talking about. People see you coming and they wanna hide. I can't even tell you the last Super Bowl party I got invited to. Cause Keith is gonna start talking about this anti-racism stuff. So that's how I became who I am. But you know what? I wouldn't give it up for anything, not anything. Thank you.
we're going to have a little intermission. Get your tea, get your lemonade, do some chatting, but not with my storytellers. Leave them alone because I'm going to take them away for a minute. And we'll see you back here in like 10 minutes. Let's hear it again for E.L. Anderson. Thank you. That's been so nice. So welcome back, everyone. Um, before we get into our second set of storytellers, I did want to give a little bit of a content warning, um, especially for our melanated folks in the audience. We, we have a storyteller who's going to talk about um, the N-word. And just like, just like when um, I did my radio show, we would have conversations with the guests about, did they want to say the N-word or did they actually want to say the word? And um, like Zareen, I think you and I had that conversation because part of what she wanted to talk about was literally about what that felt like to get called that at work all the time when people are getting mad at her because she's trying to enforce a mask mandate. Um, and so it really felt like, you know, no, that's part of the story. The harm of that is part of the story. And I don't want to water it down, you know. And so that was the same conversation we had with one of our storytellers who will be coming up. So I just want you to know that, um, that it's with intention and it's with thought when we use that kind of language. Um, and for those of us who are, for those of us who are black people in the audience, that word lands differently. Um, and so it's just important that you know there's conversation around it and intention around it so that you don't feel disrespected when that story comes, okay? All right, so for our first storyteller of the second half, Rachel Diakianis. She's a senior at Boise State University, currently working towards a bachelor's in business communication one of the things she didn't say in her bio, but that I'm going to add in myself, hopefully it's okay. She is a phenomenal poet. She is extremely powerful. She has, um, she's been in poetry competitions, which is where I first met her, but she's spoken at different events and and just brought the audience to tears. And so we're listening to a story of hers today, but, um, but her poetry is also just amazing. And I'm honored to have you here. Take it away. When I first think of the American dream, it's like everyone thinks of a mom, dog, cat, white picket fence. And for me, that was always a part of my dream more so in the sense of family. As a kid in Africa, orphaned, all I ever wanted was a family. And that dream became a reality when I was finally adopted. I was overjoyed. But I quickly began to see that the American dream of a family isn't all it's made out to be. I was adopted under pretenses of white savior mentality. Adopted not because they wanted to help a child, but adopted because they wanted the world to see them and applaud them 
for the things that they were doing and saving a child from the world that they would have lived in otherwise. I was adopted into a family of 10, me and my sister. And I only lived in that home for four years because after they were done showcasing to their community and after all the praises faded, nothing else mattered. I didn't matter. And my dream of a family was shattered. I thought I might have had a second chance when I was sent to a group home in Idaho. And I was sent there when I was only 12 years old. I thought that maybe I might have a community because I've seen movies. I've heard stories of group homes of how people connect and become siblings because they understand the struggle. But in that group home, things were not as they seemed. Outside, it was portrayed as this wonderful place that was bringing in these kids who had struggles and trying to help them overcome that. But in reality, they were inflicting more trauma and pain using our stories as a way to gain profit. Again, my dream of a family was shattered. I lived in that group home from 12 all the way to 18 years old. Meanwhile, my family at home was still trying to come in and use me back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Sometimes I'd go home for Christmas. Sometimes I'd go home for spring break. Sometimes I... And all those times that I was going home, it wasn't because they wanted me in the home, but because my mom was speaking at a women's retreat talking about adoption, and she needed me there to showcase to the audience that she knew what she was talking about because she adopted a black child. She must know what she's talking about. All I ever wanted was a family, and it wasn't until I graduated that I began to fully understand going to college being a part of the BSA club and finding inclusion within Boise that I was finally able to understand that what I was looking for wasn't a, a direct family relationship, but what I was seeking for was community. People who saw me as I was and valued me for the things that I could bring to the table, whether they were gaining profit or gaining something from it. So I stand here as a testament that Family is not the American dream, but it's a community that loves and values you for who you are. Our next storyteller is Tony Brinegar. Tony is most proud of being a mother of three amazing men, Anton, Amani, and Dante, a wife of 26 years, and a daughter. She has lived and raised her family in the same home in Nampa, and she is the first black woman in Idaho to be chair of a school board. A black person we all most most of us have a shared story and that story 
is the first time we remember being called a nigger. And I don't mean in passing or in a rap song. I'm talking about when somebody looked us in the face and said it with malice and said it in a way to help us understand where we belong, which is not in that room. And for me, that moment in my life was third grade. I was eight years old. I'm from Idaho, and when people ask me, they see me, they meet me, and they say, where are you from? And I say, Idaho, and there's this weird look come on, on their face like, oh, there's black people there. <laughs> yes, and like Zarina, raised in Rupert, I was raised in Homedale, which is a thriving metropolis of 2,000 people. My graduating class was 63. So I was the only black person in my school. I was the only black person in my town. And I was the only black person probably in the county. But I was loved. My mother had told me this story about how she wanted to have a brown baby so much that when she was a child, she begged her white mother to buy a brown baby from the Sears and Robux catalog, which she did, which I think is pretty revolutionary, really, for rural Idaho. And so that narrative followed her for her whole life, and she's pale, blue-eyed, she's half Basque, but she takes after my grandmother. And so she left Idaho after she got her teaching degree and went to the big city of Denver where she started teaching in public education and she found this handsome, very enigmatic black man to marry her and soon after they got pregnant and they had me. But what she didn't know was that my father had a pretty significant mental illness. And as so much happens when you have a big change in your life, he started displaying wild, erratic behavior. And so and my mother didn't know what to do, so she took us all back to Homedale, where my father's very dark skin stood out, and I can't imagine what it was like for him. We were just the side of civil rights. I'm sure it hadn't made it to Homedale yet, though. Fairly certain. So one day, he left one day, and he never came back leaving my mother a single mother on a teacher's salary in the mid-70s, no less. So she quickly found another, another man to marry her, a blonde, blue-eyed farmer named Steve. And he was the best dad I could ask for. I was loved. I had three people in my life who were hardworking. They showed me what it was to be loved unconditionally but they were all white. They had no clue, no model of how to raise this brown child. And so when we were walking down the Karcher Mall, three of us hand in hand, and people would stare at us the whole way we're walking. And my little self would say, why do people look at us? They would say kind things like, Tony, it's because you're so beautiful. And I believed it. 
or I would lament about my dark skin versus their white skin and say, Tony, look at how the, the sun loves you. You don't sunburn. Look how beautiful your skin is. And so I believed it because they love me unconditionally. Why would they lie to me? I'm beautiful. I'm smart. I'm everything to them. I am their everything. I still am, by the way. So in third grade, I was round. I'm still round, but I was still round then. And my mom had no idea how to do curly hair. So one day, she just chopped it off. And I was, in, I was eight years old, so mostly it was flat on one side or every side, and it had grass in it. Um, and I wasn't very athletic. And on our little playground in elementary school, we had the normal stuff, and then we had four square and tetherball. And I don't know if you know this, but I have like T-Rex arms, so tetherball was out, and I'm really short. So I would try my hand at four square and always lose, always lost. Despite my mom and my dad's encouragement, I would still go and try. And so on this particular day, I hit the ball, I was on the first square, and I hit the ball and I, I won. I got to go to the second square and I was just elated. I got to go to the second square and the student behind me was a young man named Teddy, not his real name. Teddy was small for his age, even less athletic than I was, and he had a horrible speech impediment. So that made him the butt of most jokes. But my parents taught me not to be mean to people, and so mostly, I encouraged Teddy and I liked him and I tried to help him feel good about himself. And so as he made his way to that first square and the ball came to me and I hit it to Teddy thinking I might be able to beat Teddy, he missed it and I was elated. It was like two times. I've, I've got two people out. I was so excited. And I look at Teddy's face and Teddy's face is red and he's angry and he's looking at me and he comes up to me right in my face and looks at me and he yells, that's not fair, you, you nigger. And I freeze, I, I've never heard this word. I don't know what it means and I certainly don't know how to respond. And so I just stand there staring at him and then the bell rings and we go back to class. And my third grade classroom teacher doesn't know what happened. I don't know how, I don't have the words to tell her what happened. I don't even know what it means. So surely the people that love me will tell me. So I remember walking the three short blocks to my grandmother's house who was my caregiver after school. And she asked me what she always asked me after school as she's handing me a handmade snack. She was a, you know, the grandmother that breaks bread and the makes all the stuff. And she leans down, she's a tall woman, and she asks me, what happened to school today? And I say, Teddy called me a nigger. And I look at her watery blue eyes and her face. It's already pale, but all 
of what little color that was in it drains. She stands up, she takes off her house coat, she grabs her handbag, and she walks out the front door, seemingly to go to the elementary school where she had taught for 30 years to speak with the principal. She came home and there was whispers in the kitchen when my mom came home and pitiful looks at me. The two adults that I trust most don't say anything with their words, but everything with their face. And then my dad gets home from a night of farming, a whole day of farming, and there's more whispers. And now the three adults that I trust most are looking, me, looking at me with pity. But there's not one word spoken about what happened. And so I deduce that Teddy knows a secret about me. He knows something and he told it to me on accident. He told me that I'm flawed. My parents don't have the courage to tell me and he did. So that must be what's what is the reason behind all the secrecy, that I am broken, I'm diseased, and that became my truth for the next 40 years. I had this underlying ticker tape of hatred toward myself, that outwardly I was happy, I was popular, inward, I had nothing good to say about myself because Teddy was right. He obviously knew something that the people that I loved did not. And when I went to college, I found people. I found people who look like me. I started reading about people who look like me who were scholars. I met Dr. Cornell West. I met Ice-T. And in that four years, I realized maybe Teddy was wrong. Maybe I am somebody. But then we moved back to Idaho in this homogenous state where again, that ticker tape started and continued and continued. And only with constant study, changing my feed to Lizzo, and people who look like me and telling my husband, we will not watch a movie that does not have a person of color as a main actor. Of taking all this energy to reverse those messages. Have I realized that I am worthy, that I am perfect, just the way I am? I've never told this story in public before. It is lived in me, it is festered in me. And by telling it to you, I'm releasing it. Because, because I say to you right now that the way forward, my black brothers and sisters and allies is through radical self-love, revolutionary self-acceptance, and abundance, uplifting of each other. Only then can we rid ourselves of this shared story and rewrite our American dream.
you done made those clouds cry. <laughs> You're all fine, right? It's not that big of a deal, right? I know, right? It was like... It's my fault because Jody and I were like, it's perfect weather. It ended up being absolutely perfect. Isn't this so perfect? It's like perfectly perfect in every perfect way. It's like perfect evening. Okay, let's start the show back up. Right? And Mother Nature was like, <laughs> Ooh, I love the smell though after the rain, right? To me, it just makes it even more perfect. Perfectly perfect. <laughs> our, next story, our next storyteller is Jeremy Woodson. Jeremy Woodson is a husband, father of two, home chef, and super fan of all things Minnesota. When not hiking, biking, or camping with his family, Jeremy can usually be found chasing frisbees in the park. So, um... My mom is a single mom who just so happens to be an educator. And when I had to think about the American dream, it was really hard not to just think about my mom, to be completely honest. Growing up as a child of a single mom, black educator, all out badass, there were no shortage of discussions on what me and my siblings needed to do to achieve success, achieve the so-called American dream. Um, but I think she was, she had great foresight because I think she understood that before she could set me up for the quote unquote American dream, she really needed to prepare us for America. And, um, she had a lot of tactics. She had a lot of tools that she could really grab and wield as me and my siblings got older. I didn't want any of that. I wasn't interested in any of my mom's tools. I wasn't interested in any of her lessons, her techniques, how I needed to prepare myself for school, how I needed to walk when I was down the street, what I needed to do in stores how I needed to carry myself. I didn't really want any of that. That was all in direct conflict with how I felt I needed to be seen. That was all in direct conflict with my own self-image as a young black boy growing up in Minneapolis. Mind you, that image wasn't mine. <laughs> That wasn't of my own making or my own choose. Well, it was of my own choosing, but not of my own making. But it was something that I adopted. I had seen, I internalized, I strove for, and none of it was actually very beneficial for me. I remember like, you know, like, like I was the kid that we would all be sitting around when summer came, school was done, and I'd be like, yo, I still got homework assignments. <laughs> and he'd be like, what did it summer? And I'd be like, nah, man, my mom got me on this book report. 
a lot of her lessons were really woven around this this intense and intricate need to understand my history, understand our history, and all the greatness that lied within it. And she worked really hard to pull that out, even sometimes, and it was, quite frankly, terrifying. I remember when she recorded the uh, Alex Haley book, uh, turned into a TV series, Queen. Shout out to Halle Berry. And, uh, and there's a scene in there where uh, some newly freed slaves are, are enjoying a meal in a field behind a barn somewhere, and uh, the Klan rides in, and it's like fiery firestorm, and people run, and food is kicked over into the grass. And I remember asking my mom, like, hey, can that happen to us? And she was like, no, 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 no. No, baby, you ain't gotta worry about that. They're gonna come and get you in different ways. And I had to, like, really think about that. Like, what does that mean? I thought I was just gonna stick a knife under my bed and we was gonna be good I was gonna protect the house but my mom really had the foresight to 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 be honest about what obstacles I would face to be honest about the tools that she didn't have she would tell me oftentimes I'm gonna teach you what that school up there ain't gonna teach you I don't know why she referred to the school as up there it was actually just down the street and I hated it I hated it. I had extra things to do. I had extra assignments. I had to think about stuff. I had drum group that I needed to go to and the Youth Connection Council. And, you know, I met authors that I had no intention of reading or knowing or caring about. Jawanza Kunjufu comes to mind. And he wrote a little note to me on a, on a napkin that said, Jeremy, always strive for greatness. My mom laminated it and gave it to me and said, you should put this on your wall. I still have no idea where that's at probably got lost or thrown away in a move or something. I was frustrated because my mom was giving me all these lessons and all these tools and that felt so foreign to what I was actually seeing from my peers and what I wanted to strive for and the identity I so I was so thirsty for and I thought I needed so deeply. I needed to connect with my black peers. I needed to feel black. Got in a lot of trouble for it. I forget the term that was used earlier around uh, breaking into homes and whatnot. We used to just call it hidden stangs. And uh, I hit a lot of stangs. <laughs> so uh, it eventually became a problem. What, what was I doing? I was, I was angry, I was definitely annoyed. My mother's lessons meant very little to me and everything started to pile up police calls, multiple fights, getting kicked out of the house, two felons. Um, just constant confusion. A lot of girls calling the house. I didn't know what to do, honestly. It, it, I ended up becoming a major stressor for my mother. I had a younger brother who was kind of like, dude, you should chill. He's <laughs> like, you don't know nothing. You don't know about these streets. Turns out I didn't either. <laughs> I wasn't in the streets like that before I chose to be. My mom kept me in the books, kept me in front of mentors, kept me in groups. So I could actually see more of what I didn't see regularly, more of what I felt so foreign to me. 
But I was still striving for that identity. I was still striving to make sure I could relate, I guess. Um, got bad. My mom was like, look, you can just give me the keys. Call me when you want to come and talk. And there were a lot of contracts that I eventually broke with her. A lot of promises that I also broke. My older sister was already out of the house and even she was like, bro, you're wild. That all changed when I actually got the opportunity to leave the country. I don't know how they let me leave the country, but they did. First Costa Rica, then Italy, South Korea, all over East Asia. Back to Spain, Taiwan, Cambodia, Thailand, Laos, Belize, Panama, Mexico. I don't really know what I was running from, but I do understand that I had a thirst for people and for food and for culture. And somehow I didn't know that like I actually had some of that already. Somehow I didn't know that my mom's lessons were like intricately tied to my thirst to go farther and to meet more, to see more, to experience more. I didn't make that connection. Eventually I was able to study abroad. After that, I was able to work abroad. After that, I was just kind of wandering <laughs> with a backpack. Uh, and I think at one point I didn't even have a return ticket to come back from Europe and I had no money. So I didn't know, I didn't quite know what I was gonna do. My travels ended up taking me all the way to Barcelona, Spain, where I got to live for a couple of years, teaching, learning Spanish, chasing Frisbees on the beach. <laughs> with a lot of my friends. And I remember being there and having all these talks with like some friends from Europe, friends from all over the world about Brexit. And I had a good friend that was like, mate, you should, you should, mate, you should watch out and see what's going on in your country. I was like, whoa, I don't know what accent that was. And I remember November 2016, it was like, I, I, I don't even know where I was when I had this thought, but I like to think that I was probably sitting in a plaza somewhere with a glass of red wine with my then girlfriend, now wife. But I remember thinking after the election, I can't stay here. I can't just be sitting out here, not knowing what I'm doing, chasing paella, sipping wine, sitting on the beach in the sun, bouncing around the Mediterranean. I can't do that. I knew very well who was actually gonna be harmed by the hateful rhetoric and by the demonizing that was now cascading from the White House. <laughs> I knew what that was gonna mean. My mom's lessons were the ones that let me know. And when all this talk about how we were going to fight back, how we were going to push back, how we were going to reclaim our narratives, when all that started to kind of bubble up, I just wanted to be a part of it. I just wanted to be down. <laughs> now this is a different down from the way I wanted to be down before. I wanted to be like 
super down before, and I had, I assure you, if I showed you the photos of me in high school, you, you, you would know what I mean. This was totally different, though. It was a, it was almost like my mom's lessons were like always there somewhere floating around in my atmosphere. And even though I couldn't make sense of it at the time and I, I completely rejected it, it was all perfectly laid out for me. And I was super terrified. <laughs> I didn't know how to come back to the United States. I didn't know what I was gonna do. I actually didn't know if I was actually employable because I had been doing so many different things and some of doing nothing at all <laughs> that I didn't even know what I could do. But I remember thinking like, if I don't go back, and play a part then then how can i enjoy sitting out here with all this privilege i'd already been ridiculed for sounding white and having a vocabulary and i thought that was a bad thing people wanted to know i was interested in skateboarding i still snowboard to this day shout out and i hated all that stuff before and now all these new skills all these things that i really didn't even view as part of me as a black identity, my black identity. Uh, now I wanted to really represent it. I wanted to use those same skills to come back, to try to affect change. I was lucky enough to have a college degree. So I figured I could just ease my way on back in. Uh, it was interesting to me that the, like, literally the image that I was trying so hard <laughs> to attain uh, had now completely dissolved away. I didn't think about those things anymore. I really only thought about my mother's lessons and all the techniques and all the ways that I needed to give back and all the reasons why I was prepared to do that. I now live in Boise, Idaho. That's cool. I didn't think I would ever live here. But I lived in enough places to know that like, shoot, if I can survive in Busan, South Korea, where I was definitely the only black person. I can make it work in Boise. I now am proud to say that I get to work in advocacy. I work for the ACLU. <laughs> in a state where some people actually hate the ACLU, which I think is just, like if any other state should love the ACLU, it should actually be Idaho. I spent a great deal of time, I'm not a lawyer by the way, just in case anybody's curious, I'm not a lawyer. But I do spend a great deal of time telling stories of empowerment. I do spend a lot of time telling stories of community. I do spend a lot of time telling stories of victory and how we get to reclaim narratives, how we get to reclaim ourselves and how we get to own our own joy. I didn't think I would have to do it in such a heinous atmosphere and I certainly didn't know in 2016 how bad it would get. But I do know what it felt like to have to come back and play a part. And I now know that that was always a part of my identity. Thank you. Can we have a round of applause for Mike Stand Umbrella Riga? Saved me from the sun earlier, saved the mic from the rain, like MVP of the show. 
Well, this has been wonderful and glorious. This has been everything that I was hoping it would be. I'm so grateful that I am in community with such brilliant and diverse thinkers who are courageous and doing so many different things in this community to make it livable for those of us who feel isolated and like we're alone and then we're like, oh, hey, I'm not alone. There's other people that are out there. They're doing the things and they're saying the things and I'm so glad uh, to be in company with all of you tonight. And so let's bring our last storyteller of the evening up, Alice Nelson. Alice is a published author who has written for the online literary journals Short Fiction Break and Ouroboro. Ouroboro. She was a featured storyteller on the Ming Studios podcast, My Morning, and was also a featured storyteller at Podfort, which was part of the Treefort Music Festival in Boise. This is actually her second appearance as a featured storyteller for Story Story Night. And one thing that she didn't add that I'm throwing in there is that she has a kick-ass rock voice and used to be in a rock band, and they were good. Okay, I'm done ad-libbing oh, okay. your bio. <laughs> in a previous life, I dabbled in conservative politics, which unfortunately that led me to evangelical Christianity. I thought I had found my tribe, my people, my place of, of acceptance and belonging. What I didn't know was that my inclusion in the group was conditional. Come as you are, the sign on their church said, but the terms and conditions were in fine print. Come as you are, as long as you're willing to change into what we think you should be. And I tried, I, I really did try to be that Christian mom and wife, that perfect conservative member of society, but it was exhausting. And it was exhausting because I couldn't be who I really was. And if I couldn't be who I really was, had I actually found that place of belonging and acceptance that I was looking for? That's rhetorical. So I went to their church. It was a Bible-believing church where they told me everything I needed and all the answers was in this vacant book of platitudes. This was a a group of people who actually believed that the United States was God's favored nation because we were a Christian nation and that the man was the head of the household and that his wife was his silent partner who supported him and stood behind him smiling like an idiot. Now, I didn't know what to do about this or, or these feelings that I was having. I just knew that I was starting to unravel when these people, these people that I had known for many years, began their rapid descent into the delusional world of MAGA, where truth became lies and then these lies became gospel. What I didn't know then was that it was the beginning of my deconstruction my break from this prison of belief. Now, the truth was I never really thought about what the American, American dream meant to me, not even at a church where it, it seemed like it was part of their philosophy. 
The truth was the phrase always struck me as cliched, you know, something you'd hear on the 4th of July or at a political speech meant to rally the base. But when I thought about it, the truth is that the American dream is an illusion. And it's a, an illusion that can only exist if the nightmares that black and brown people have endured and still endure in this country are ignored. But the funny thing was, I didn't really think about this until people that I thought was my church family had ripped off their masks to show me exactly who they were. Uh, but I'm surprised because I'm, I'm surprised I didn't come to this conclusion earlier. Like during my six years of being bused into a white neighborhood to attend junior high and high school. Schools where we weren't wanted, where swastikas and niggers go home and niggers go back to Africa spray painted on the walls were an all too common occurrence. And I still didn't reach this conclusion when I applied for a job. And when I came into the office, all of a sudden they weren't hiring anymore. The shocked looks on their faces told me everything I needed to know that they, they did not expect me to be black. And I still didn't reach this conclusion when, during my days of singing in the rock band, I auditioned for this group that was looking for a female singer. So I went to the audition, did my thing, I thought it went really well. So they said, hey, wait outside, we're just going to discuss it a bit. And I thought, oh great, they're going to make that decision tonight, one way or the other, so I would know. Then the guitar player walks out, kind of sheepishly, and he says, I really liked you, but the other guys threatened to quit if we hired a black singer. Now, those experiences, as, as difficult as they were, they, they didn't affect me in the same way because those people didn't know me. They made a judgment call about me based solely on the color of my skin so I could write those motherfuckers off. Who gave a fuck what they thought about me? They were outliers, anomalies, fuck them. But when, when people I put my time in with, people who I thought I had made lifelong friendships with, when they turned their backs on me because they refused to hear me when I said, hey, this country doesn't work the same way for everyone, that's when the realization hit. Because these people couldn't imagine that their bumper sticker theology of American exceptionalism in the land of the free and the home of the brave didn't resonate with everyone. They, they couldn't understand me anymore. They, they were disappointed in me because I wasn't the happy, smiling black Alice they had grown accustomed to. You know, they could take out their get out of jail free card, slap it down on the table and say, hey, I have a black friend so I can't be racist when they said racist things. Or, hey, my black friend Alice agrees with me so they didn't have to listen to another person of color calling them on their bullshit. They used me to justify their soft bigotry and I was a fucking ally. And I did it because I wanted to fit in, because I wanted to belong, even if it was to my detriment. But I knew that my time with these people had run its course when these Bible-believing, loving Christians didn't love their neighbors enough to wear a fucking mask or stay home from church for just a little bit till we could figure out how to function in a pandemic. Then they began saying things like, oh no, the left's gonna use COVID to make worshiping illegal and I'm being persecuted because they're asking me to stay home. Then they started posting things like All Lives Matter to counter the Black Lives Matter movement. And then said disgusting things about George Floyd after he was murdered. That 
is when I permanently close the door on that life. I begin to see these people with a different set of eyes. It was like in that movie, They Live, when the guy puts on the special sunglasses, which allows him to see the monsters hiding under the human masks. I challenged their way of thinking and I became the enemy. So they blocked me on Facebook and pretended they didn't see me if we ran into each other in the grocery store or the coffee shop. They had effectively rendered me invisible, non-existent. I no longer belonged to the group, all because I didn't believe what they believed anymore. I'd like to say it didn't hurt, but it did. And, and you know what? It, it still does to a small degree because these people were my friends. And then all of a sudden there was this giant division between us. But really, we were just a microcosm of the nation itself. So what would the American dream look like to me? This, this illusion, what would it look like to me if I could wave a magic wand and change things? If I could change things, there would be no more Rodney Kings or George Floyds. There'd be no more Philando Castiles or Elijah McCain's. There'd be no more Ahmaud Aubrey's or Breonna Taylor's. No more Trayvon Martin's or Tamir Rice's. There'd be no more white women using the police as a weapon against an eight-year-old black girl selling water on the sidewalk so she can earn money to go to Disneyland. <laughs> There'd be no more Karens calling the police on black people simply having a barbecue in the park. And I wouldn't have to worry about my nephews fitting the description of the black suspect and being detained or beaten or shot. But maybe my idea of the American dream is as much an illusion as the ideas of those former friends of mine. An unattainable fantasy that can never come to fruition in a country that had already chosen its winners and its losers well before the slave ships ever arrived. For so long, a black and brown people, we've been told that we don't matter that our contributions to this country are minimal at best and definitely not worthy of discussions in classrooms or history books. We are the invisible underclass to the privileged few and it has always been that way. It's, it's like what Ralph Ellison said in his book, The Invisible Man. I am invisible, you understand? Simply because people refuse to see me. Know how right he is. But you know what? I will be seen. I do matter. Fuck it, I'm the American dream. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And a special thanks to the City of Boise, the Boise City Department of Arts and History, and the Irma Heyman House for hosting us. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. Have a story? Call the storyline at 208-917-1970 and leave a message or email us at story at storystorynight.org. Please subscribe to Story Story Night on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story. 